Well, good morning, everybody. Are you glad to be here? We'll see if that holds true as we move through this subject because I am on assignment this morning, which is to say I didn't choose the subject. It was assigned to me. Your pastor said, will you preach Daniel 7 and then next Sabbath, Daniel 8 and then next Sabbath, Daniel 9. So what you're about to receive is his fault. It's not my fault. Unless you love it and then it's my fault, just for clarity. So I'm going to begin by telling you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell it to you, and then I'm going to tell it to you again in short form. Now that middle part where I'm going to tell it to you the second time, that's the body of the message. But this subject is so heady, and there are so many moving parts that it's important to know what we're looking for. So the book of Daniel as a whole, and Daniel chapter 7 in particular, is a study in contrast. It's a study in what, everybody? Contrast. So we're looking for contrast. What kind of contrast? It is a study in contrast between two operating systems. The book of Daniel as a whole, Daniel 7 in particular. A study in contrast between two operating systems, two governing systems, or or listen, two ways of relating to others. Two relational dynamics, especially in the form of governing systems. And essentially what we're going to discover is that the book of Daniel is a study in contrast between power and love as two diametrically opposed ways of being human. Now in order to get there, I want to call your attention to the work of an extremely important historical author. You may or may not have heard of Joseph Campbell, but he wrote a book that has gone down in history as one of the most remarkable works of research ever performed. He spent decades reading all the myths and stories of ancient civilizations, from Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, Persian, myths, the Greek myths. He just looked at everything. He just said, I'm going to read all the literature of the world and see what I discover. And what he discovered in this ingeniously titled book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the singular hero, but with a thousand faces, what he discovered is mankind's one great story What he discovered, and this is prior to the internet, nobody's comparing notes, there's no such thing as Google, you drop your finger anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in history, you drop your finger anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in any culture, and without any corroboration, every culture and language group of history is telling the same story. Now that's an odd phenomenon, given the fact that they are separated by thousands of kilometers oftentimes, but somehow they all end up saying the same basic thing or teaching the same basic narrative. He calls it mankind's one great story. Now follow, because he goes on to say that this one great story is a timeless vision. It doesn't matter where you go on the timeline of human history. This particular story just shows up. The names are different, 
the places, some of the details, but the big broad strokes of the picture of this timeless vision are the same. And he says, he asks a question because this is quite profound. So he says, from what profundity of mind does it derive? Essentially, in layman's terms, he's saying, why the heck would people all over the place end up with the same basic storyline? Why are they all saying the same thing? What's going on? What profundity of mind? What's going on psychologically in the human being that would naturally, organically give birth to the same story? That's what he's asking. Why is mythology everywhere the same? Again, different names. You, you know, you can have Marduk or Zeus, separated by thousands of years in two totally different cultures, same basic principles and characteristics, same basic story. Why is mythology everywhere the same, notice this language, beneath its varieties of costumes? So these stories look different on the exterior, right? The costume is different, but the internal operating system of the story is precisely the same everywhere you look in in the world, and that's what he's calling our attention to. And this is true even of our modern myths. In fact, the, the Marvel universe and the DC universe, I'm not sure which is which, but this is one of them, with Superman and Batman and all the other mans and Superwoman, all of these myths currently are simply a retelling of the ancient Greek Babylonian, Egyptian, Mesopotamian myths. In form, in structure, it's the same story. Whether you're dealing with Iron Man or Captain whatever he is and the guy with the hammer, all these different stories, right? They're all the same story on repeat, the same story on repeat, the same story on repeat. Now, there's a scholar who is now deceased um, named Walter Wink. Professor Wink like Joseph Campbell, was interested in trying to understand what's going on in the world in general, not locally in one culture, but what's the big meta-narrative of the world. And Walter Wink, he was teaching at New York State University, and he wrote a series of books on what he termed, he coined this term, as best I can tell, I can't find any earlier reference to it other than his writings, but he coined a term, and the term, and I want you to capture this, if you're a note-taker, write this down. If you're not a note-taker, you might want to snap a photo of it. But he called it the myth of redemptive violence. What is the myth of redemptive violence? It's the belief that violence saves. It's the belief that war brings peace. It's the belief that might makes right. It's the myth of redemptive violence. If there are bad guys, we need badder guys to be badder than the bad guys in order to conquer the bad guys. So listen very carefully. There's no fundamental difference in character or principles between Batman and the Joker. They're both using as their primary modes of conquest violence and deception. The only difference between Superman and the bad guys, the only difference between Iron Man and the bad guys, the only difference between Thor and the bad guys, the only difference between Zeus and the bad guys 
is that the good guys are just more powerful than the bad guys, but with the same basic kind of power. Violence and deception. So bad guys conquer bad guys with bad guy methods, would be one way of saying it, right? We need a hero that can kick some dot, dot, dot. That's what he's describing here. Violence, he then offers an observation. He's a professor and he's teaching, and so he wants people to understand that this is actually a failed system. It's cyclical, and it produces what it attempts to conquer. Did you hear what I just said? It produces the very thing it tries to defeat. Violence never stops violence. Because its very success, the success of the violence, leads others to imitate the violence. In other words, on a micro level, you slap me, I'm going to slap you back. You throw a punch, I'm going to throw a punch back. You cut me off at the, on the freeway, I'm going to cut you off on the freeway. I'm going to do to you as you do to me. And here's the key to what we're going to discover. The universal narrative that you find in every comic book and every ancient culture and myth is basically what I'm going to call the power over others orientation. It's a muscle. I'm going to flex. I'm going to rule you. You're going to do what I want you to do or else. Some people do marriage that way. It's the same exact principle. The hero in this myth, in this universal narrative, uses force to govern. What's going on in your heart is irrelevant. I don't care about your feelings. Just do what you're told. This is the basic attitude, right? And this is called, according to Walter Wink, the myth of redemptive violence. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the universal narrative has a contrasting counter-narrative, and there's just one time a different story was ever told in history. According to Joseph Campbell, according to Walter Wink, everywhere you go in history, no matter what the culture, no matter what the period of time, everybody is telling the same story. We need a hero that's more powerful than our enemies with the same kind of power. And there's one outlier perspective. There's one counter-narrative. And that counter-narrative operates by a power-under-others orientation. I'm going to serve your needs to produce a voluntary response from your heart because I do care what's going on in your heart. And the power under orientation has a hero who uses love to fight evil, not force, not coercion, not do what you're told or else, but love is the mechanism, the means, even you might say the weapon and this is not the myth of redemptive violence. This is the story of redemptive love. And it is embodied in a single hero in human history. And his name is... Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the one counter-narrative. If you're sick and tired of the way the world operates with the power over others' orientation, if you're tired of flipping channels and seeing nation rise against nation, 
If, if, you, if you're tired of seeing grown men can't even have a conversation to resolve their conflicts by peaceful means, there is one kingdom and one king in history that stands head and shoulders above all the rest. And he's above all the rest because he's under all the rest. He's washing everybody's feet. He's loving, loving, loving to the end of himself. Rather than throwing blows, he's receiving blows without retaliation. This is the one counter-narrative. It's the story of redemptive love, and it's remarkable, and that's the story of Daniel 7. So we could close with prayer right there. We're 12 minutes into it. I'd be fine. I'm kind of hungry. But according to your pastor, I have to explain Daniel 7 to you. And I'm glad that he gave me this assignment because I love this, but you're going to have to buckle up because it's very, very serious stuff. So Daniel chapter 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Daniel basically just says, some of this I'm going to summarize for the sake of time because I don't want to keep you any longer than necessary. But I'm putting the whole text on the screen so you can get the context, right, for the people who are speed readers. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 1. Basically, Daniel says, I had a dream. He had this dream in the first year of King Belshazzar. Uh, Daniel is a character that exists in history about 2,500 years ago from now, 500 years before Christ. He is having this dream as an elderly man operating as a political figure in the Persian Empire. Prior to that, he had served under Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. This is 500 years before the time of Christ. Babylonian Empire now has transitioned to Persian Empire as the dominating force. Daniel says, I had a dream. Verse 2, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, four winds of the heavens stirring on the great sea, and four great beasts come up from the sea, each different from the other. This is biblical symbolism. It's apocalyptic symbolism. It's eschatological symbolism. The Bible gives us the keys to unravel these symbols. When you read about four winds in Scripture, it's not talking about literal breezes working up a gale and coming across the surface of the earth. Four winds indicate war. Human beings, nations, are, kingdoms are at war with one another. And the sea is stirring up. That's the people that are the population bases. According to the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15, when you read about seas in the Bible, it means essentially a sea of people, a bunch of people, populated areas. And the sea is people. There are nations that are going to war against nations, and they are for beasts. So when you read about beasts in the Bible, very much like today, you know, there's the American eagle and the Russian bear and all of that. Beasts or animals are oftentimes down through history, mascots for countries. A country will choose the animal they want to represent their general character or mission on the earth, right? So you have four winds, great sea, four beasts. Then these four beasts are described. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read you verses 4 through 6, I believe it is, where these four beasts are described in detail. So I'll just give you a visual snapshot of these beasts. There's the lion, Daniel says, and it has eagle's wings. There is the bear, which has three ribs in its mouth. There is a leopard with four heads and 
It has four wings. And then there is this nondescript beast. This is called the terrible beast. Later on in the book of Revelation in the Bible, another word is used, and that word is dragon. The word dragon is not employed here, but the word dragon, it's a dragonish kind of beast. It's terrible. It's a terrible kind of beast that Daniel couldn't find any corresponding animal for, like a lion or a leopard or a bear. There was nothing in nature he could liken it to. It was so absolutely insane. So he said, it's just terrible. It's dreadful, he says. And these four beasts represent four world empires that unfolded in succession one after another. The lion represented the kingdom of Babylon, which reigned from 605 to 539 BC. Daniel was a slave, a Israelite slave as a young man under Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. That's how he ended up in Babylon. Then the bear, which conquered the lion, Babylon, is Media Persia. Daniel has his dream while he is a cabinet official as a slave in the Persian Empire. Then Alexander the Great comes with great speed like a leopard with four heads. There were four generals in particular that were leading his military campaign. And those four generals under Alexander the Great conquered Media Persia and Greece became the ruling empire in the place of Media Persia. This was after the death of Daniel. And then there's what is called the dreadful beast, the nondescript beast, the beast that is so dreadful that Daniel couldn't even find a corresponding animal to represent it in nature, and that is the Roman Empire. Now, this is what's fascinating as the prophecy unfolds. After this, verse 7, he's just described all four beasts. After this, I saw in the night visions... And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. So here's one thing you need to understand, especially if if you're going to revisit this. Take this note down. Chapter 7 of Daniel parades before us all four empires. But the chapter has a specific interest in the fourth empire. So the first three empires are just spoken of kind of in passing. A lion with eagle's wings, a leopard, a bear. But this one receives attention. More words are devoted to this fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire, because it's dreadful, it's terrible, it's exceedingly great. If you're a historical buff at all, you know that the Roman Empire was, and still to this day, is unprecedented in human history for the damage it did on planet Earth to expand its borders. So you have this terrible beast, the fourth beast. And this is interesting because in verse 7, he says, it, this fourth beast, had huge iron teeth. This kingdom actually began to be known as the iron monarchy of Rome. It It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, devouring what? Devouring other nations, taking up territory, right? These are the early conquests of Caesar, and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet, and then this very enigmatic line that is extremely important. But he says, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So he wants us to understand that there's something, what would be a synonym for different? 
unique, distinct. You have empire after empire after empire, and you're, you're starting to yawn. Oh, they're all the same, the same, the same. And then the fourth beast, Daniel says, wait a minute, sit up and take notice, because this one's different than the other ones. This is different from all the beasts that were before it. Now, we're just going to pause in verse 17 to notice that we're not taking a leap when we interpret the beasts to represent kingdoms, kings, or nations, because Daniel just tells us explicitly in verse 17, the great beasts, which are four, are four kings which will arise out of the earth. So back when we did our little interpretive exercise where we said these beasts represent kingdoms, the only way I knew that, the only way you know that, is because later on in verse 17, Daniel just lets the cat out of the bag. He deciphers his own symbol. He says these are kings. These are kingdoms. But then, verse 19, he says, Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast. Remember, he said, this one's different. There's something unique about this one. So I would like to know more about the fourth beast because it's different from all the others. Okay, if you look at history and compare it with the succession of the empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, there are very specific characteristics that make the fourth empire different from all the others. And the primary difference is that the fourth empire, listen carefully now, has two lives. It has two periods of reign under two different modes of operation. And this is the transition. No other empire in history has undergone this kind of transition between the pagan Roman Empire under the Caesars. This is a almost I mean, there's superstition that they inherited from the Greek myths, but this is almost entirely a military, political, and quasi-secular empire. The pagan Roman Empire under the Caesars. But then there's a transition that occurs that Daniel witnesses in his vision. This pagan Roman Empire, this secular empire yields or gives way to a development in its own history. It's still one beast. It's the fourth empire, and this is crucial to understand. There's not a fifth. There's four empires, and the fourth empire undergoes a transition from secular to religious. What did I just say, everybody? A transition from secular to religious. It was merely an empire all about politics, and military conquest, and now suddenly it's not ruled over by a king or an emperor. Suddenly you have this new kind of character in the history of world affairs, this religious ecclesiastical figure that has ultimate and total power. And he's not a king, he's a pope. And yet he is a king as a religious figure. Well, this is very fascinating because Philip Schaeff and many other historians, I'm just giving you one example in order not to keep you here any longer than necessary. In the history of the Christian church, Philip Schaeff informs us that the Roman church state, notice the hyphen. What kind of power is this? It's different. It's unique. It's not like Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece. 
This power turns out to morph into not just a state, it's a what? It's a church state. It's a church state. And the Roman church state's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 due to a letter of the Roman emperor Justinian. So the Roman emperor, Justinian, he was the, the heir to the throne of Rome after the Caesars. And Justinian did something remarkable. Is he made a decree, and it's known as Justinian's decree, which set up and acknowledged the bishop of Rome, that's the pope of Rome, as the head of all churches. I'm just abracadabra, this political figure, this this king, this emperor, Justinian, says, the Pope now has supreme authority over every Christian and every Christian church. He now has supreme authority. And it went a step further. It gave the Roman church state political civil power as well as ecclesiastical or religious or church power. Are you guys tracking with us? So what's happening here is this monumental transition in history, where a political empire suddenly becomes a religious empire that wields political power. Let me say that again. There's a transition in history in which a purely political power gives way to a political religious system that has supreme power over human beings. And this is very interesting. The letter became known as Justinian's Code, and it was the fundamental law of the empire. And that year, Pope Vigilius ascended the throne. Okay, now, now this religious figure, I mean, think of, think of a pastor, a religious figure is suddenly on a what? A throne, a symbol of political Power ascended the throne under the military protection of one of Justinian's general, Belisarius. So this is remarkable. We come back to Daniel 7, and now in a single verse, Daniel, in this prophecy, ingeniously gives us three primary characteristics of this power. Now, there are actually more than that in the whole chapter, but I couldn't go through all of the characteristics of this power with you. So these three are the most prominent for the way this power exercises authority down through history. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, notice the words very carefully. He, who's he? Well, in the context, this is the papal phase of the Roman Empire. Are you, are you still with me, or did I lose you? He is the papal phase, the Catholic phase. He is the papal phase, the Pope phase of the Roman Empire. And he shall speak, notice this, pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law by implication, grammatically, of what? The Most High. Not just regular run-of-the-mill laws like speed limits. The Pope didn't come to power and say, I just hate this speed limit thing we got going on. I'm going to change the speed limit. It's the most high's laws. So there are these three characteristics of the papal phase of the fourth beast. I told you this is a mouthful. Some of you need to sit up a little straighter, breathe a little deeper, and oxygenate your frontal lobe right now because we're not done. <laughs> okay, I'm looking at the clock here, and I'm only 27 minutes into this. I have at least three more minutes. Okay, so the fourth beast 
has these three characteristics. There are others, but these three we're going to focus on. Pompous words against God, persecutes the saints of God, and tries to change the law of God. Anybody who has even an elementary, high school level understanding of history would look at these characteristics written 2,500 years ago and say, oh, I know exactly what power that is. There's no other power in history that performed these three actions by its power. So what are the pompous words? Well, the pompous words, the list could be longer. Again, I'm trying to be brief here. The pompous words came in the form of a doctrinal system. In Scripture, when a power, a king, um, an empire speaks, it doesn't mean that the king or the empire is just blabbing. It, when, a, when a power, when a king speaks, it's in the form of law and doctrine. This is, this is legislation. This is a doctrinal system. The pompous words against the Most High God were, number one, papal infallibility. The Pope ascended the throne and then essentially said to the whole Christian world and the world beyond the Christian world, if we had time to get into that, it's pretty chilling, the Pope basically ascended the throne and said, I am infallible. That is to say, when I open my mouth and I speak doctrine or law, it is the doctrine and law of God on earth. Don't defy what it is that the Pope speaks because the Pope is infallible. This is a doctrine that is still intact to this day, papal infallibility. It's never been changed. It's never been repudiated. And then, once you have infallibility, you can just make stuff up, <laughs> right? Once you have infallibility, you can just say, hmm, what would be a doctrinal system I could create that would be in the best interest of the empire because there are some buildings I would like to build and they're kind of expensive. Well, the doctrine of purgatory was invented. It's nowhere in scripture, but it wasn't merely invented. It was kind of pilfered from paganism and the doctrine of eternal torment. It had a precedent before the Pope ever described eternal torment, the Roman, the pagan Roman uh, historian Virgil described eternal torment as a pagan belief. And the Pope just basically said, hey, Virgil's got a good idea. If I create these two doctrines as Christian doctrines, purgatory and eternal torment, I can scare people to death. And I'll bet we could raise a bunch of money. It was very kind of benign the way you did your offering this morning. Very simplistic. Hey, if you'd like to give something to help the cause of God, go ahead. We're going to pass a plate around it. You want to give something? Go ahead. The Pope said, you will burn forever in hell, and it'll never stop if you don't give me all your money. My family and I were just over in Italy a few weeks ago, and we toured St. Peter's Basilica. And everybody there knows the history. They all know that this opulent building was built with purgatory money. The entire edifice was built on the premise of, if you want to get, you know, Auntie 
Debbie out of suffering in purgatory longer than she has to. If you give enough money, the Pope will write you an indulgence. This was an actual, like a, a piece of paper with the Pope's signet on it. You know, she was going to be in purgatory, suffering indescribably, for three million years. I'll take a million off if you give me $2,000. It was that crass, it was that ugly, it was that despicable, and everybody knew it, but nobody would speak against it until one dude worked up the courage that we'll talk about in just a minute. And he flipped off the whole system in the name of Jesus. That's probably not the best way to say that, but he got pretty ticked. So, purgatory and eternal torment, and then penance and indulgences. You know, you, you, you would be given a, like a prescription. Okay, Father, I have sinned. What shall I do? Well, say 20 Hail Marys and give 20 bucks and, and uh, you know, try not to do it again. But if you do, I'm here collecting money. It was a way, listen carefully, it was a very sophisticated way of monetizing shame. People do bad things. In their conscience, they feel guilty. And an authority figure steps in and says, I can remove that guilt from you for a price. It was that diabolical. So Pope Leo XIII, back in the 1800s, said, quoting him, we hold on this earth the place of God Almighty. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. This wasn't one outlier crackpot. This was church doctrine. This is what was being pushed on the masses of the world. Not only in all of Western Europe, but then with the Crusades inching into Islamic territory to basically have a crucifix in one hand and a sword in the other hand, and the message was convert or die. I was just in Turkey before I came here, and I asked some of the locals, hey, what's your feeling about Christianity? Oh, we hate it. Why do you hate it? Well, because you guys, you Christians murdered our people because we wouldn't join your church. They're still living in that headspace today. And they're referring to the Crusades. And all their high school courses teach it to them. Right? So, so we're, we're Jesus in the flesh. And then he does a little Q&A session. Nothing like a good Q&A with the pastor, right? Does the Pope speak? It is Christ who speaks. Does the Pope accord a favor or pronounce an anathema, that means a curse? Well, it is Jesus Christ who accords the favor or pronounces the anathema, the curse. So that when the Pope speaks, we have no business to examine, quote, unquote. Essentially, don't think, just do what you're told. Now, the words of Daniel should be echoing in your mind. He shall speak pompous words, pompous words against the Most High. Do you know what the word pompous means? I'm not making this up. Uh, excuse my passion about this. Daniel is the one that is describing this to us. Pompous. Do you know what the word pompous means? Arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic. Can you even conceive of anything more egotistical or 
any more arrogant than to say, I am God on freaking earth, do what I say or else. With a military behind you to back it up. This is what Daniel described to us. Well, then it said that he would not only speak pompous words against the Most High in its doctrinal system and its legislative system, but that it would persecute the saints of the Most High God. There was the invention of heresy by the Catholic Church. Heresy was anything that didn't agree with the edicts and the doctrines of the church. And it was punishable by death. And so it is conservatively estimated that between 70 and 100 million people were slaughtered, were burned at the stake, were killed in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus, straight up through the Middle Ages, through the Dark Ages, the only person in history that even comes close to this level of massacre is Stalin. Estimated somewhere between maybe 40 to 70 million people were slaughtered by the Russian dictator, the Soviet dictator. And numerous forms of torture were invented in churches by church people, by church leaders, in order to torture people into subjection to say, I agree with what the Pope said. W.E.H. Lecky, a historian, says the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind. Now, of course, you see he said this before World War I, World War II, but even World War I, World War II, doesn't match the slaughter of the Dark Ages in the name of Jesus that was done by this church. Well, then you have the third characteristic. I hope you're following this. We said that in verse 25, there are three characteristics. Pompous words against the Most High, persecuting the saints of the Most High God, and changing God's laws. Well, history bears out, and anybody who can go to a bookstore and buy a Catholic catechism or buy a Catholic Bible, you will find that it's different than the Protestant Bible. In the Catholic Bible, what you have is the second commandment is deleted. That's the one that says you shall make no graven images, no idols. You, you cannot worship false gods in the form of idols. Well, that had to be removed because, number one, the Pope himself set himself up to be worshipped. Number two, it had to be removed because the Pope took all the statues and idols of the pagan empire before him and just changed their names and said, this statue here of Zeus, it's, it's now Peter. Abracadabra. And it was required of the people to worship these idols. So the second commandment was rather inconvenient, yes? But there's the idea that there's 10 commandments. So think of how sloppy this is academically. There has to be 10, right? But we just eliminated number two. Let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's nine now. Oh, no. So they looked over very carefully, and they found that in number 10... You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife. Oh, there we have it. There's two. Divide those. So you have number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Number 10, don't covet your neighbor's wife. So we have 10 again. That's really nice. And then number four, number four, the fourth commandment was changed from the Sabbath to Sunday, from Saturday to Sunday as the day sanctified, made holy, blessed, and on which God is to be worshiped. Now, Lucius Ferreras, in 1763, in writing on behalf of the papacy, on behalf of the Pope, said the Pope is not so great 
the Pope is of so great authority and power that he can modify, explain, or interpret even divine law. So this had to be written. This had to be written somewhere so that, so that the, the monks and the, and, the, and the priests could read it to people and say, no, 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 it's okay to eliminate number two and to divide number 10 and to change the fourth commandment from Saturday to Sunday. It's, it's okay. Why is it okay? Well, because Luis Ferreira wrote a thing <laughs> that informs us that it's cool to do that. Because the Pope is of so great authority and power that he can modify, explain, or even, or even, or interpret even divine law. The Pope can, he goes on to say, modify divine law since his power is not of a man but of God and he acts as the vicegerent of God on earth. So there you have it. You can just, the Pope just has free reign politically, militarily, ecclesiastically, and now power over even scripture itself to do what he wills with scripture and to change it to suit his purposes. Suddenly it stopped working. I'm not sure what to do. There we go. So, if you read Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to start summarizing now this part of what we've discovered. What made this empire so diabolical and destructive? It's really important to, this point is crucial. What made it such a problem Right? Babylon was a problem. It was a very vicious military power that went around conquering others. Babylon was a problem. Medo-Persia was a problem. Greece was a problem. It was a vicious military machine, the empire of Greece. It was all bad, 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 bad. 15 different ways to Monday, it was bad. But this power was, what did Daniel say? different, was different. And what made this power so diabolical and destructive is that it claimed to be the Christian church. And so the destruction was not merely territorial. It wasn't merely a destruction of lands and people groups like Greece and Persia and Babylon had done. It wasn't merely a conquest of physical territories and geography. What made this so diabolical is that it was an assault on the human mind and heart regarding the character of God. It essentially said, God is a vicious, sadistic monster, so you better get in line. Because the thing that claimed to represent him on earth had formulated a doctrinal system and a mode of action with the sword to persecute and to use force in the name of Jesus. Every sword driven through the heart of a heretic or an infidel was in the name of Jesus. And that empire spread around the world outside of Europe until eventually, according to, and I don't have time to get into this now, according to the book of Revelation, that system masquerading as the Christian church produced eventually the backlash of modern atheism, according to the book of Revelation. Countless people in Western Europe rose up and essentially said, if God's like that... I don't believe in God. And atheism 
was born as the bastard child of the church. Atheism came into existence not on the premise of Darwinian evolution. That book, The Origin of Species, wasn't written until more than 100 years after the French Revolution. What, what, happened, what happened with this system is that the character of God was so uglified and defamed that people were only given one of two choices, really. If you think about it psychologically, if you're just, if you're just a psychoanalyst, this system gave to the world two choices. You can either serve God as a slave or you can rebel against God as an atheist. But the third option was not available. You can't love him. Your heart can't be in it. You can't adore him. You can't fall in love. Why? Because you can't fall in love with a monster. You can't fall in love with a tormentor. You can't fall in love with someone who has a knife to your throat. All you can do is serve in fear or defy with unbelief. And those were the only options open to the world. And that's what made this system so diabolical. This is why Martin Luther rose up and said some of the most astounding things anybody who has ever written on paper said, and the level of courage, he was a Catholic monk. And he started writing stuff like this. If there is a hell, Rome is built over it. I feel much freer now that I am certain the Pope is the Antichrist. After the devil himself, there is no worse folk than the Pope and his followers. I mean, this guy had, what do they call those that guys who say this kind of stuff has? Whoa, he really stepped up. Now, he overshot the mark sometimes. He said some things that you and I wouldn't say. But the courage that it took him to stand up and to defy this entire ecclesiastical empire... As a single solitary individual, it is astounding. So Daniel's prophecy, specifically in chapter 7, reveals to us a succession of empires. These empires are paraded before us. Now follow, and this is the conclusion. These empires are paraded before us. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome in its pagan form. Rome in its papal form. Pompous words against the Most High. Violence in the name of God a doctrinal system that is threatening and horrifying and terrifying, the papal phase of that empire. Now watch this. According to Daniel, these empires are paraded before us for our judgment, for us, our assessment. We examine them. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're, we're engaged right now in a kind of, a kind of pre-advent judgment exercise. We're using our brains, our rational brains, to assess this system's claims and hopefully drawing some conclusions that God is more beautiful than all of that. So this system and all these systems are paraded before us and then something happens. This is, this is the remarkable part. If, you, if all the rest of it was, was just completely unnecessary, I don't even know why I said any of that. This is the part right here that is most important. Daniel 7 verse 9. After these kingdoms are paraded before us, Daniel says, I watched. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days, capital A, capital D, 
Yahweh, God, was seated on his throne. Now, now follow, follow the cadence here. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome in its second phase that defames the character of God in the name of God. And then the judgment is convened. And the Ancient of Days takes the throne. Other people have been taking the throne. Other people have been purporting to represent the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days says, I think I'll take the throne myself. And the Ancient of Days is seated, and his garment was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head, was like pure wool. By the way, he's not, he's not elderly. He's old. He's called the Ancient of Days, but he's not elderly. He doesn't keep his teeth in a jar by the bed. He doesn't have a pain in his left knee, and his hairline is not receding. God looks about 26 years old, but he has white hair, apparently. Entropy has not had its way with the Lord, and the Lord is very, very eternally young. So here is God on his throne, right? And Daniel says, I'm watching. And his throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels were a burning fire. And a firing stream, another version says, a fiery river issued and came forth from before him. Do you have the picture? The throne room of the universe. God is seated upon his throne. The whole throne is on fire and it has fiery wheels. And a river of fire is flowing out of the throne of God, which scripture says is the love of God. Our God, Paul says, is a consuming fire. Moses says, God's law is a fiery law. Solomon says, God's love is a fiery love. And all this law and love and glory of the truth of God's character in all its beauty is like a river of fire flowing out of the throne of God. And a thousand thousands, these are angels, ministered to him. There's angels all around him in the fire, apparently not consumed. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Incredible. And the court was seated and the books were opened. What? Remember the context. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Papal Rome, claims about the character of God that defamed the character of God. The court is convened. The court is convened contextually to assess and to judge what? All of these systems, and particularly the fourth one, that claims to represent God in the name of God. And I watched. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, this little horn, this is the second phase of the Roman Empire, the pompous words which the horn was speaking. So now we know. I'm not stretching, am I? The court is convened specifically to assess the pompous words of this system. Yes or no? Yeah. I watched till the beast, the false Christian system, in the historical trajectory. I watched until the beast was slain, and its body, this entire psycho-edifice system, was given over to, its body was destroyed and given over to the burning flames of the truth of God's character. 
This system is consumed by the beauty and glory of God, by the love of God, by the law of God, by the truth of God as exemplified in Jesus, by the gospel. The gospel, this passage says, will conquer this false system. Bad religion, according to Daniel 7, is judged as evil and it is destroyed and will eventually be utterly and completely annihilated. I was watching in the night then, so now this system has been judged as misrepresenting the character of God. Watch this now. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, this is so remarkable. So don't forget where we're at. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Papal Rome. Horrible misrepresentation of God's character in the name of God. The judgment is convened. The beast is given to the burning flames. And then one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven before Yahweh, before God the Father in the throne room. This enigmatic figure, he's not given a name. He's given a title. It's a descriptive title. He's the Son of Man. That is, that is listen, the Son of Man in Scripture is a term that means... Whoever this is, he's one of us. He's, he's a son of man. He's a member of the human race. He's in solidarity with us. He's on our side, not on that system's side. He's for us, not for them, not for it, not for that colossal misrepresenting system. This one is the son of man He's for us. He's one of us. And he comes, he comes, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And they, that is all these angels, they're like, oh, we're so glad you're here because this has been an ugly history. And people have been wounded and broken by this system with its big iron teeth chewing up and spitting out humanity in the name of Jesus. We're so glad you're here. And the angels bring him before, bring the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. Picture it, there's God the Father, and there he is, the, the, the Son of Man, and he's standing before the Father. And the heavenly court convenes to assess and judge between these two opposing systems. Jesus is the contrasting system. Then to him, the Son of Man was given. All the other ones are taking, 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 shoving, kicking, clawing, shooting, stabbing, waging war. And not him, to him is given by God himself, whose alone it is to give. God gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the other kingdoms are transitory. They just come and go, come and go, come and go because the cycle of violence never ends. Because the myth of redemptive violence perpetuates violence. Every empire that throws blows will have blows thrown at them. And one empire will sink into oblivion in history and another one will rise on its heaps. But his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away 
And his kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom, emphasize the word kingdom. This will be important in just about two seconds here. And his kingdom, the one that will not be destroyed. Jesus alone, Jesus alone operates by principles and has a character that is eternally sustainable. Everything else is bankrupt of moral significance and meaning. None of it's sustainable. The moment a religious or political power builds its empire on violence and force and coercion, its days are numbered. Every violent empire comes crashing down. But not his kingdom, because his kingdom is different. Earthly empires rise and fall, but the kingdom of Christ alone is eternal. So then Jesus is born of Mary in Bethlehem. He comes into this world. And the first thing out of his mouth when he launches his public ministry is a political speech. He deliberately employs the language of kingdom. He is himself born to the first phase of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus is on the throne of Rome. Jesus steps up and he says, repent everybody because the kingdom of heaven is here. Here's the study in contrast. Kingdoms have come and gone. You've seen it all. But repent, the word is metanoia. It's a skateboarding term from long ago that means do a 180. It means turn around and go the opposite direction in your thinking. I don't know what you're expecting. I don't know what you're expecting. You've had the Caesars. You've had, you've had all those empires. Repent, turn around. Do a complete flipping of the script in your expectations because I'm here now and you're not going to witness the same principles and character on display. Turn around. You're about to see something that goes against the grain of everything you've ever seen operating in human history. Repent, metanoia, turn around, go the opposite direction. And then he explains his kingdom. We're not making this up. This is the time, the time, please hear this, that Jesus quotes Daniel 7 in order to make the point. Notice it. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, what do they do? How do they operate? They lord it over them. This is what I called earlier the power over others orientation. They lord it over them. And uh, they're great ones. What do they do? They exercise authority over them. Yet, what did he just say earlier? Repent. Metanoia, turn around. Look in a totally different direction. This is a whole new kind of kingdom. I'm a whole different kind of king. You, I don't know what you're expecting, but you're not going to get what you got all through history. Repent, because it shall not be so among you, my followers. All that lording it over others, all that authoritarianism, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your what? This is revolutionary, you guys. If you can just put yourself in the context of all of this, 
Jesus comes along and he says, this is a whole different kind of kingdom. The great ones will be servants. And whoever, whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. As a voluntary action. Just go down. And guess what? Guess what? The way up is actually down. Like that cup I saw in an Australian gift shop. Welcome to the top of the world. You guys are very ironic. But if you're on the top of the world and you travel south far enough, you end up at the top. Jesus is telling us the truth here. And then he quotes, literally quotes from Daniel 7. He says, for the Son of Man, he claims the title of the one in Daniel 7 that is brought before the Father, the Ancient of Days. For the Son of Man did not come to serve, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. To give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is deliberately quoting Daniel chapter 7 and saying, I'm I'm the son of man in that prophecy, and I'm here now to launch an entirely different kind of kingdom on entirely different principles. Jesus is what we might call the anti-king of the upside-down kingdom in which love alone is power. Martin Luther King Jr., at the height of the civil rights movement, understood this and saw this in Jesus and penned one of the most remarkable sentences ever written by a human being. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final say in reality, the final word in reality. So here's what we have before us this morning. We have Jesus, utterly unique from all the other empires and kings down through history. We have Jesus coming into the world as a servant. We have Jesus coming, turning water into wine and saying in that act, a whole different kind of kingdom is here. We have Jesus coming and playing with children as they crawl all over him and put flowers in his hair and braid his beard. The kingdom of heaven is here. We have Jesus healing the sick that nobody even wanted to get near and in the act of healing saying the kingdom of God is here. We have Jesus touching the untouchables, the kingdom of God is here. We have Jesus socializing with ethnic outcasts, whispering through his actions, the kingdom of God is here. We have Jesus befriending moral outcasts, prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and liars sitting there with them at table saying, pass the hummus, please. The kingdom of heaven is here. Forgiving sinners and in that act, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here, embodied in himself, teaching us to overcome evil, not with evil, but with good, saying the kingdom of God is here, teaching us to serve rather than to rule over others. The kingdom of God is here. And finally, voluntarily, not because he had to, but for a love for you and me that is staggering to the human imagination. He voluntarily gave his life a ransom for many as the Son of Man. He died on Calvary's cross in that climactic act of self-sacrificing love to say this is what the kingdom of God 
really looks like. The kingdom of God is here.